jump into word go to matthew and we'll continue on for a little bit matthew chapter 14 um and we'll pick up where we stopped a couple of questions to think about before we jump into this because this passage has been thought about a bunch of different ways and let me ask you some thoughts why do you believe what you believe because i said so (laughs) that's what's up your mom and dad told you. Honest truth is, I came to a crisis of faith in my life where I, I realized that, literally, that I only believe what I believe because I grew up believing it. I mean, when you go to another country, for instance, and everybody in that country is, say, Muslim or Catholic or something else, and are they all going to hell because they firmly believe what they grew up believing? I mean, that stuff starts getting in your head. Then you start thinking, well, I grew up believing this, you know, and it, it'll mess with you. You know, why, I guess another way of saying that then is why do you trust Jesus? What evidence do you have for your faith? And before you say, well, faith doesn't need evidence, that's not biblically true. Hebrews 11 says faith is evidence of things hoped for. So what evidence do you have, I guess, for what it is that you believe? The word, man. That's what's up. That's it. I mean, what makes Jesus believable? I think the word is the answer, but let's let's be fair because there's a lot of people who don't believe in the word. So what makes Jesus believable? The temptation here is to look for something that he's done. I can say, well, he did this or he did this or he did this. Well, if he did, how do you know? Did you see him do it? You know, what makes him believable to you? And if you're looking for something that you think he did as an answer to that question, then you're always going to have a struggle, I think. You're always going to have, or or if you're looking for something that you hope he does, that's not necessarily evidence. That's just things that you hope happen. So I think the word is the answer. But think about it like this. What makes you, if you're married, what makes you love your husband or love your wife? Is it something that they did? You get to know them. Yeah, it's who they are. You get to know who they are. Remember that Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. What more does he got to do than that? With with the handful of loaves and fish there, what more does he have to do than that? You know, if it's about what he does, you're always going to have a struggle. But it's not. It's about getting to know him, to know who they are. I remember growing up um, as a young boy... David Copperfield was everything. I mean, the magicians and seeing all these magicians do stuff, but especially him. I'll never forget him making the Statue of Liberty disappear on live TV and uh, all that bunch of mess. And there's been magicians over time that have done all kinds of miracles that have supposed miracles that have gotten crazier, such as levitating right in front of people and um, all kinds of wild things. I remember seeing him walk on water. Um, of course, you find out later that there's glass under the water that you can't see that they're standing on. So let's be honest. Is it magic or is it fraud? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not trying to play down witchcraft. That's not what I'm talking about. OK, is, is it a, an illusion or is it a con? You know what I'm saying? I, ultimately, it's meant to be entertainment. It's not meant to be um, stealing something from you like a con would do, but. it's entertainment. But does that tell you anything about the magician, personally? What do you know about David Copperfield from the fact that he made the Statue of Liberty disappear, personally? (laughs) Nothing. You know, that doesn't, the fact that he did that tells you absolutely nothing. If somebody, a magician or somebody could walk on water, what does that tell you about him as a person, his nature, his character, like nothing, first of all, because you know it's a illusion to begin with. But second of all, it doesn't tell you anything. And for many, Jesus is the same way. He is entertainment. He's fascinating. But to the disciples, he's something totally different. 
we're going to come in here in chapter 14 around verse 22, but most people come to this passage and the focus is on Peter taking his eyes off Jesus and, you know, or not being afraid of the storm that surrounds you or it being safer in the storm than it is on the shore. Uh, but I don't think that's what this is about. Those things might be true, but I don't think that's what this is about. I think this is not about Peter. Imagine that. I think this is about Jesus revealing something to his disciples that the crowds don't get to see, which he does all the time. This is about Jesus making himself known, and he's on the back end of this huge, epic miracle. And this is something else. He's not healing anybody. He's not providing for anybody. He's just revealing himself to his disciples. He didn't have to walk on water up to them. He could have just materialized, I guess. That sounds funny. Or whatever. I mean, he could have got a boat and rowed the boat himself. He could have done anything he wanted to do to get to the other side. So what he's doing here is something that's primarily focused on him. It's not on Peter. It's about his ability as well to empower Peter to do something that Peter couldn't have done. And Peter gets this big... Bad rap for this. Everybody goes straight. He took his eyes off Jesus and he sunk. But let's not forget, none of the other disciples even thought about making this kind of an attempt. You know what I'm saying? Faith is never about what you are able to do because of your faith. It's never about what you're able to do because of your faith. Faith is about what you are able to do only because of him with you. That's it. It, 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 faith is about what you're able to do only because he's in other words you could never do this if it weren't for him being with you see what i'm saying it's not about hey i got faith so i can do this that's not it it's because he's in me i can do what i could never have done that's the picture so look at verse 22 and we'll go in here it says immediately after the fish miracle feeding 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go. John and Mark both record this event, but as usual, we're going to stay in Matthew, but I will reference it a little bit. But immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, it says that twice. Why do you think he had to dismiss the crowds? Two times it says that. They're not going away. They're not going away. Should they go away? See, that's where the trick comes. Nobody even thinks about that for a minute. The Son of God is here and he has a following and he's telling them to go away. Why would he do that? I think they're following him to see what they can get out of it. I think the reason they're following him is questionable. That would definitely be one. We, we can get context here from a couple of things, but it tells you a couple of things about it. And let me finish the sentence. He, once he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Obviously, he sent them away on purpose, but he didn't just send the crowds away. He also sent the disciples away. Sent the disciples one way and told the crowd, beat it, you know, like twice. And some reason, I guess they're still following him. However he did it, I don't know. But he got rid of the crowds. I mean, they just been fed. They're ready to go around too now. It's funny. He said that the disciples had said, hey, Jesus dismissed the crowds so they can go eat. Remember that? And Jesus said, no, you feed them. So he, they feed 5,000 people or 20,000, however many it was, 5,000 men. And then, then he dismisses them. So the miracle was obviously intent, but then he dismisses him and he goes away. John 6 is where the parallel story is. You don't have to go to it. But in it, it says when he saw the it says when the people, verse 14, that Vanda was going to here, when the people saw the sign that he'd done, this massive feeding, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. So by that, they either mean the Messiah or they mean Elijah returned or both. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, on one hand, he's moving away from a mob that's about to start a rebellion in his honor. That's what it means to take him and make him king, is to say, okay, well, let's turn on the Romans. You're obviously the Messiah. You need to be on the throne And they're going to go at it. But that's obviously not what Jesus came for. 
So that's one reason. And the reason they're doing it is because they saw the miracle. So that's one reason he dismissed them. But he also sent the disciples off. So he wanted to be alone. And it's important to remember, why would this, why would, he's the son of God. He's here to, in a sense, build a following. Why does he want to be alone? To spend time with his father, yeah. What are you going to say? He's tired. Why would he be tired? But he's the son of God. But he's a man. Yeah, he's still a man. This is huge now. He's still a man. He is in a human body, and he is a man. What are you going to say? Absolutely. Word. He separ- he's immediately on the back end of that. They had the 12 loaves and all this. He's separating himself, separating his disciples off. He's separating the crowd off. And everything now, the disciples are about to see something the crowd don't see. In any event, yeah, he wants to be alone. Even at this moment, I think, from his disciples, who are his closest friends. Sometimes, you know, that's, there's a simple fact in that. If the Son of God in his own body needed a break. I mean, there's times you're going to have to get alone. And he didn't just get alone because I'm tired of needing a nap. He hiked up a mountain in order to pray. You know what I mean? He needed, he needed, we might call devotion time. You know what I'm saying? He needed time. And it might just been that he wanted it. Not even that he needed it. He might have just wanted it. Imagine that. That'd be revolutionary, wouldn't it? Um, if you're like me, you probably grew up in the, if you grew up in church, you probably heard about how your quiet time should always be in the morning. Should always get up early in the morning and do quiet time because that's what Jesus did. I was told that all the time. In fact, um, I got a guy in a discipleship group right now who's in another very large church here in town. And he said they're real big on pushing that because Jesus got up early. You must get up early and do your quiet time, even to the point of being like almost legalistic about it. But the problem is that's not always the case with Jesus. Right now, he's getting up in the evening and going. Luke 6, recording an earlier account, which we've already talked about in verse 12, it says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray to God. And when he came back, he called his disciples and chose them. Uh, Twelve, he named apostles, and we've already talked about that. But that one, he, that one tells you straight up, he prayed all night. So why don't we say that? Here's your quiet time. If you don't pray all night long like Jesus did, then you're not close enough to him. You're doing it wrong. You know, furthermore, that's two counts where it says he went up on the mountain. So you need to go on a mountain to pray for your quiet time as well. You better get up early. And fortunately, we live in a city we have mountains. Thank God we're not in Kansas or we'll all be damned. Excuse me. But that's the idea. You know, if we if we want to be holy, we got to go on a mountain. Well, we live right in Chad, you know, Chattanooga. There's mountains all around. Pick your mountain. Just make sure you're up there, whatever early means. And then make sure you stay all night. It's not it's just not true. It's just not true. It's just not true. Yeah, maybe just move on the mountain. Why would he go to a mountain anyway, by the way? Isolation. Closer to God. I think maybe some think that that could be true. You have that feeling. I mean, Zion was a mount, is a mountain. Jerusalem. Sinai was a mountain. Huh? I think that's it, too. You can see creation. You can see his. What does it do to see his creation? Yeah, perspective. What does it do to... Have perspective to see his creation. Puts you in awe of him. Makes you feel kind of small, don't it? Might even make you a little bit afraid if you're like me and you don't like heights. Yeah? Might remind you of how small you really are in the grand scheme of things. Humility. You know, now Jesus created it all. So we don't have to necessarily think that with him. Uh, I do think there's an element of getting closer to him. In the sense of heights. Is he out in outer space somewhere? No. Is he floating in the sky? No. But there's some sense of height drawing you closer to him. Maybe that's part of it. But that's not the only one. Another one, before we race there, Luke 5.15 says, The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he withdrew to desolate places and prayed. So that doesn't necessarily mean a mountain. That just means a desolate place. So... 
if you think about a desolate place or a mountain, what's the added benefit or what's the reason? Privacy. Privacy. All by yourself. Remember, a cave is a good thought. Remember Elijah, whether it was right or wrong, Elijah, when he was at the end of his rope, literally, um, facing what he believed to be certain death from Jezebel, journeyed to literally Mount Sinai and went and hid in a cave on the side of the mountain to be alone with God. And he sure got alone with God, all right? That's a crazy story. You can read it in your own time. But why would Jesus pray? I think we've talked about this before, too, but. Now, you could say the model prayer, our Father who art in heaven, he did that for his disciples to teach them. Yes, but this, we don't know what he prayed. I've actually, a lot of commentaries say he was praying for his disciples, but we don't know that. We don't know what he prayed. Why would he pray? If he's God. This is like epic theology question we could talk about forever, but just your thoughts. Wanted it. That's what I think. We could say the human element he needed. I do believe that. But I think the majority of the reason that he got alone to pray is he wanted it. It tells you that he was with the Father in the beginning. And Jesus even prays, I think in chapter 17 of John, that God would restore him to the where he was before, when they, this is weird to say, but when they were together before the foundations of the world. That's Dave's translation of it. That's why we see God as... One God expressed in three persons. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. He didn't need the angels. He has complete community in himself, which is crazy to think about, but it's reality. So you have a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we say, yet they're all the same one God. They're all in perfect unity with each other. So when Jesus is here, he's in perfect unity with the Father. Does he need to go pray? Is he just modeling that for us? I think on some level, yes, he's modeling it for us to get alone to pray. But I also think he just wanted alone time with the one he loves. The one that he has experienced intimacy with in a way that none of us will ever know. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, I, I can't put my brain around this. This is why This is why our God is bigger than we are. This is where faith comes back in. And you get to know him even though you can't explain him. I also believe, too, he sent the disciples away again, as I said, because he saw this coming. Look in verse 24. Let's keep going. It says, but the boat, by this time, he goes up to pray. And the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. John chapter 6 notes three to four miles, which for us, if you think sea and long way, you might be thinking like 50 miles. But the sea is only about five miles across. So it. They're, they're nearly across it. They're a little better than in the middle. But they're fighting for who knows how long to get that far. Because they're beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And then the fourth watch of the night, that's between three and six in the morning. It's the last hours of before dawn. He came to them walking on the sea. Mark 6 says he meant to pass them by but saw them struggling. And almost sounds like in English what, they're, what he's saying is that he was going to go on. But when he saw they were having a hard time, he came over to help. That's not exactly what it means. It means more that he intended to pass close to them. Like the point being, he wanted to be seen. That's the point. He wasn't trying to slip past them. He intended to come past them where they could be seen, where he could be seen. Keep in mind, he's not doing a magic trick here. His body is walking on water. There is a severe wind that's making it hard for the boat to get where it needs to go. The waves are booming and hitting it. There's no reason to assume it's a storm. It could be a storm, but it's just high winds and they're putting hard waves at the very least against the boat. And he is not doing magic. He is on the water. And he's coming at a time even when perhaps the sun is coming up behind him. The sun wouldn't have been up, but maybe some light starting to peek around. It's, it's gotten just bright enough where you, your eyes may be starting to play some tricks on you maybe. And you're seeing some craziness on the water. And he's coming from the east because they were headed west. So they're looking back in the direction where maybe it's coming up. And verse 26, it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. 
and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, literally phantom is the word, spirit. Ghost is a pretty good word, but that's a, it's, a, it's a scary feeling. They're horrified by whatever they're seeing. It's not uncommon for sea goers to have all kinds of beliefs in ghosts on the sea. But in particular with the Jewish tradition, one commentary says, Jewish tradition warned of dangerous night spirits. On a popular level, many Gentiles and probably a number of Jews believed in ghosts. Although such a belief technically contradicted mainstream Jewish views of the afterlife, heaven or hell or future resurrections. Gentiles often believed that the ghost of those drowned at sea hovered over the sites of their deaths. And to the Jews, dying at sea was the worst kind of death you could have. So the thought that they're now out here on the sea in this terrifying place to begin with, they have in the sense that they're going to die, and suddenly they're seeing the dead standing on the water in their mind, in their mind, they think he's the dead. And they're freaking out, terrified that this is it, we're going to die, the dead are coming to get us, I think. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, so he shouts out and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I is pretty awesome. It's literally the phrase I am. And just to make sure I wasn't reading into that, I checked and most every commentary references that. It could definitely read it is I, but the language suggests he's saying the name of God. I am. Again, one says, literally, Jesus says, I am. Although this can mean it is I, the activity in the context supports an allusion to Jesus' deity from Exodus chapter 3, where the same Greek phrase used in the Septuagint reads that way, as it does here. Give you some verses. Don't turn to them. Just write them down. I think Jesus is pointing back to say he's the same I am in Exodus 3. What did the Exodus, what did I am, that God, same God, What did he do in Exodus chapter 3? He was in a burning bush and he told Moses, go set my people free. Now, you have all the plagues, but what's the pinnacle moment? After the plagues, huh? When the people, when he delivers the people, what's the pinnacle moment of that story? He parts the Red Sea. He makes it stand up on both sides. Now, he's walking on the sea now. But if he can part it, can he stand on it? You know what I'm saying? I think in a lot of ways, that's what he's getting at. Ch- give you some verses of, about I am. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. You're probably familiar with it. It's a great verse. It rolls right into jo- first of Joshua. But it says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is I am your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41.13 says, For I, I am your God. I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Isaiah 43.1. I love this one. But now thus says, I am who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you and I've called you by name. You're mine. And funny enough, here comes Peter by name. And only Matthew records Peter doing this. I don't know why. Maybe Matthew just wanted to throw Peter out there, you know, for this moment. But verse 28 says, and Peter answered him. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, we all want to beat him up. He said, Lord, if it is you, but let's just hold on a minute. Of all of the stinking things he could have said. Lord, if it is you, let the sun come on up. Lord, if it is you, stop these waves. Lord, if it is you, I mean, of all of the things to ask, you know, I mean, imagine, let's put this in realistic terms for me. Imagine you're standing on the Empire State Building right on the edge and Jesus is floating in front of you. And you say, Lord, if it is you, call me to step off the edge. Of all the things, I'd be like, Lord, if it is you, you know, make this happen or make that happen. Don't touch me. You know, I'm about to throw up, stand on the edge of this thing anyway. You know, of all the things to ask. Why do you think he said that? And by the way, I don't have the answer. 
I don't know why. I mean, we can look at the biblical, some truths in it, but of all the things that he, he said, verse 29, Jesus says to him, come on. I love that. He says, come on. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. So, so let's dispel another thing. He didn't get four steps in and freak out. And Jesus wasn't necessarily a half a football field's distance from them. He could have been five steps away from the boat. He could have been 50 steps. We don't know. But whatever distance he was, Peter got all the way to him. Peter got to him. He didn't freak out initially. He literally did walk on the water and he walked all the way to him. And when he got to him, that's when... It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So it sure is funny, not to beat him up, but maybe a little, that he did this, but he got all the way to him. And when he got to where Jesus was, he took a breath, I think, and then started to look around and see what's going on. And things started freaking him out. It's probably, Peter's probably like most of us, you know. If we step out on faith, we feel like everything's going to work out. Don't you? Isn't that what we do? You think, hey, man, if I step out on faith, people tell you this, too, by the way. If you go, you're going to have such a peace. You're going to have such a peace. If you just step out on faith, man, God's going to open doors. Everything's going to be calm and you're going to have such a peace inside. That just ain't true, folks. I mean, it, it might be sometimes, but that's not a principle you can tell somebody. It's just not true. In fact, I love the way Wearsby put this. He said, as we read our Bibles, we discover that there are two kinds of storms. Storms of correction, when God disciplines us, and storms of perfection, when God helps us to grow. Jonah was in a storm because he disobeyed God and had to be corrected. The disciples were in a storm because they obeyed Christ and had to be perfected. Jesus had tested them in a storm before when he was in a boat with them. Remember when he calmed the storm? But now he tested them by being out of the boat. Many Christians have the mistaken idea that obedience to God's will produces smooth sailing, but this is not true. And Jesus said, in the world, you shall have tribulation. In fact, he promised it. When we find ourselves in the storm, because we've obeyed the Lord, we must remember that he brought us here and he can care for us. Whatever the storm is that's beat, whatever these waves are that are beating the boat. I guess Peter now is now I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself there a minute. Peter's now with Jesus and maybe he's looking back at the boat and seeing the boat getting tossed and beat on and thinking, man, how is this possible? You know, how, how is this possible? Again, he's the only one that came out there, but I think that's. Probably what he's doing is funny. He says he saw the wind. That's just a funny phrase anyway. He saw the wind. You can't see wind. Um, but he did. And there, again, no reason to assume it was a pouring down storm, lightning, rain. It, it could have been, but there's no reason to assume that. It's just telling you there were strong winds. And on the water, if you've ever been on this, the lake or certainly an ocean or anything, you know what wind can do to waves. Matthew 8, you remember this. We'll go back to it really quick in verse 23. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Now, this is a full blown storm here. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you a little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and waves obey him. That's already happened. You know. But I like the way Wearsby put it. It's a whole other story when he's not in the boat. He's walking on it this time. Not that it's any small miracle that he calmed the storm. And they asked the right question. What sort of man is this? But they're still identifying him as man. No man can walk on water. I mean, that's not even possible. He, he's all man at this point. How, how is he even able to do that? 
And that's why they thought he was a ghost, because no physical body can do that. It's not about the miracle. It's about who is this? Do you do you believe in who I am? Do you know who I am? Better question. I like know better than believe. If you know who he is, you'll believe. Do you know who I am? You know, do you really get it? He's demonstrating here that he has authority over the natural laws of the universe. You understand what he's doing here? I mean, because he's not he's not appearing as a ghost. He's not appearing as a spirit. He is a man still. And standing on water, it's not a magic trick. He's saying, I have the authority to take a human body and stand on water, which is physics will tell you is impossible. The laws of gravity will tell you is impossible. I am above those laws. But he goes even farther than that. He empowers Peter to get out and do the same thing, which is telling Peter, I have authority over your body, too. Peter couldn't do that. He knew he couldn't do that. And it's not like Peter was able to because of his faith. Peter got out of the boat by faith, but he was able to do it because Jesus had control over his physical body as well as his own physical body. He had control over Peter's physical body and his own physical body, and he also had control over the waves and the wind and everything. That's the point. He's the creator. He is in control of everything. And for just a minute, listen, let me push this a second. But for just a minute, Peter is just like Jesus. Not because Peter has some faith that makes him like Jesus, but because Jesus is there. For just a minute, he's just like Jesus. But the moment that he starts to question a minute, he realizes he doesn't actually have the ability to do any of this. Because he starts to sink. Jesus is the one that has the ability to do it all. It's Jesus that makes him look like Jesus. Of the three Gospels that record this event, they all three tell a different ending. um, But they're not contradictory because the word is not contradictory. So we'll look at them in order to get a comprehensive picture of the end. So go to John first, John chapter 6, really quick. We'll just look at two verses each time. John chapter 6, end of the story in verse 20. It says, but he said to them, it is I or I am again, same thing. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. It skips the whole thing with Peter. They're glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going or at the other side. Some suppose that means it's a miracle that he stepped in the boat and boom, they were on the shore. That's not what it's getting at here. It's just saying that there was no more struggle. They got in the boat and I mean, they were already three to four miles across a five mile stretch anyhow. So from the moment he got in the boat, they were quick and swiftly to the other side. Okay, that's not untrue. That changes nothing from what Matthew recorded. It's just telling you that they got over immediately without any more struggle or any more wrestle or anything. Immediately they're there. Okay, go to Mark chapter six real quick. And this one's a little more bizarre. Mark chapter 6, verse 51, same account. Verse 51 says, And when he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased. So now you know why they were swiftly to the other side. The wind stopped all of a sudden. And immediately, or excuse me, and they were utterly astounded or blown away. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So that's a weird phrase to throw in there. You know what I'm saying? They didn't understand about the loaves. Um... I love that Mark doesn't go to any attempt to explain what he means by that. Now, there's all kinds of ideas. Well, what do you think? They didn't understand the miracle, the point, the point of the miracle. Let's put it that way. And here is another one. What's the point of either of these miracles? What is only ever the point, really, of miracles that Jesus did? To identify him, to bring glory to him, but to identify him of who he is. And I think that's what he's getting at. They, they, why should they have been astounded that he calmed the storm or that he walked on water? He just fed 5,000 people. Well, see, it's easy to go, well, feeding 5,000 people is one thing, 20,000 however many. But walking on water is a whole other thing. Not, not if you know who he is. Not if you know who he is. No, it's not. If he created everything, this is why I say this all the time, and Joey could tell you, he's heard me say it a million times. If I love that God wrote his word with the first verse where it is. If you get past the first verse of the Bible, 
nothing else is hard to believe. If God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, parting the seas a piece of cake, walking on the seas a piece of cake, anything else you read in that whole entire book is a piece of cake for him. The question is only who is he? So is Jesus the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth? And if he is, then they shouldn't have been surprised that he'd done this miracle with loaves of bread. They shouldn't have been surprised that he could calm a storm. They shouldn't have been surprised that he could walk on water. But it says their hearts were hardened. Why are their hearts hardened? What does he mean by that? Yeah, they're stubborn. You know, there's more to that. There's more to hardened hearts than that. I'm not trying to go back to Pharaoh here, but I'm just saying that we do the same thing. I know. I, I promise you, I do. I see him do something amazing. Only God could do. And then five days later, God, where are you? You know, or is this thing really for real? Or am I crazy for trusting in this or trusting in that or whatever? When when it really comes down to it, if I know who he is, then it shouldn't surprise me every time he... I should celebrate. I should be excited. But it shouldn't surprise me that he does what he does. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about healing somebody who's on their deathbed with cancer. And that's surprising. I'll be fair. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. You know, in an awesome celebratory way, it is. But... That's what makes a miracle a miracle. It's uncommon. If it was common, it wouldn't be a miracle. It'd just be a law of nature. You know what I mean? So in a sense, it's okay that it's shocking. But what he's saying is utterly astounded. In other words, they're like, how can he do this? That's a diff- There's a difference between being, wow, oh, wow, I, I can't believe this just happened. Or saying, how in the world is he capable of doing that? If, you, if, if God were to heal somebody and you know that he did it, and you say, well, how is he able to do that? Then that would make me question, well, do you really know who he is? You know what I'm saying? You, you, that's a good way to look at it. You, you get callous to it and you start to think, and I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, like, man, this, this miracle is amazing that he did this, or it's crazy that he did this with feeding the fish, but I'm uh, feeding the fish, feeding the people fish and bread. But then moments later, they're blown away that he's walking on water. Well, I mean, it's like they just get used to he did miracles because, A, a prophet maybe could do that. Maybe David Copperfield could do that. Uh, MacArthur said this about it. He said, an explanation of the disciples' overwhelming astonishment at what had just happened is because they misunderstood the real significance of that afternoon's miracle. They could not grasp Jesus' supernatural character as displayed in his power over the lake. So the fact that they can't grasp what they're seeing with him over the lake just shows you they missed the whole point of the last one. That he could provide, that he's able to do immeasurably more. You know, the the verse, verse go back to Matthew, 31, uh, Matthew 14, verse 31, we'll finish Matthew's account. So, Peter... Looks around, freaks out, starts to sink, and he's right there. Okay, he's he, again, he's at Jesus because it said it got to him. So it says, verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I like that Peter freaks out and yells at yells at Jesus to save him, calls out to him. And then Jesus doesn't say, you a little faith, drop to the bottom, sucker. You know what I mean? <laughs> he didn't say that. And for that matter, I say, Jesus said he had a little faith. If it was Dave's standard, he had epic faith because he got out of the boat when the rest of them wouldn't. And of all the things he did, he walked clear across over there to him. You know, Jesus says little faith, which, as as we noted before, is the same language he used before. The word used here for doubt is standing between two options, two ways. You have two directions to go, and you're committing to neither. So, in a sense, he's standing there, and he's doubting. What's he doubting? What are his two options? He's standing there with Jesus. What's the other option? 
Well, thinks what happens. Live or die, maybe, yeah. But this I mean, not spiritually speaking, just put yourself in his physical shoes. If he's doubting, you're standing there on this water with Jesus. You have two options. What are your two options? I stay standing here with Jesus on the water or what? Go back to the boat. That's what I think. I think he starts to look back and sees the boat getting beat up. But at least it's a boat. And for a second, he start, this is Dave now maybe, but I think he's, for, he's forced with two options. Sinking is not an, I wouldn't choose. I, let's say I'll stay with Jesus or I'll drown myself. That's not an option. Doubting is saying, I've been presented two options. I'm with Jesus. That's one of them. I'm standing on water, which is amazing. But maybe he looks at the water and the storm and starts to say, wait a minute. This is not possible. This should not be happening. We need to get back in the boat. You know what I mean? And then he starts to sink because he can't walk back to the boat. He can get out of the boat and walk on water to Jesus, but he can't walk on water back to the boat. If he tries to walk back to the boat by himself, he can't walk away from Jesus back to the boat and stay on the water. You see the picture there? It's interesting, too, that this thing, this storm is is buffeting the boat or smashing the boat literally the word is tormented and some commentaries even go so far as to suggest that it was a spiritual force on the water against the boat and there's some spiritual warfare that's going on here that very well could be Um, verse 32 it says when they got into the boat notice it says when they got into the boat so as you said he couldn't get back to the boat without jesus they came back together so he starts to think jesus pulls him back up Right there, and they walk back together. My thought is that he did take his eyes off Jesus, but in the sense that he's now looking at other options. We shouldn't be able to stand here. Why are we not sinking? He sees the boat. We need to get back in the boat. And maybe he starts to go a step before Jesus does and starts to go down. And Jesus, you know, screams, you know, save me. And Jesus picks him up and they walk back together. The point being that he's only able to do this because of Jesus. That's it. And he's able to walk back even then because of Jesus, verse 33. And those in the boat, what? Worshipped him. That don't, don't overlook that word. Worshipped him. Why is that a big word? He's God. You worship God alone. You don't see my worshiping Elijah. You don't see my worshiping angels. You don't see anybody. I mean, he's saying they were they worshipped him. If he was not God and he was a prophet or the son of God being somebody separate from God, if he was any of those things, he should have said, according to his own word, he should have said, worship God alone. Do not worship me. Worship God alone. And you should correct that real quick. But it doesn't. Because he is God. He says, truly, you are the son of God. The Son of God. Regardless of what they didn't understand about the loaves, they understand something right now. Now they're going to forget it pretty quick. Once, like we always do, but they got it. Son of God is a crazy term. I'm not going to take time to go into it all. You can look them up. Proverbs 30, verse 4, is one of the best. It's a reference to God having a son. And you can look it up in your own time. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is probably one of the more famous ones where it gets requoted later where God says, Today, you are my son. And John 3.16 is probably the most famous one. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, his singular son, that none should perish but have eternal life. The son came into the world not to condemn the world, but that it might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe or does not know him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Same thing. Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary, says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The demons come to him. In Luke 4:41, and in multiple other places, the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them, wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Matthew 16:15. we haven't got there yet, but very shortly, 
The disciples are already unsure, it would appear, but because Jesus asked the question that we've had on the board the whole time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter alone says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I think that's another reason maybe why Matthew notes that Peter had the courage and the, he, Peter's the one that got out. I think Peter was investigating just a step farther, no pun intended, than all of these other disciples. And by this time it says, Peter's replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Point here is only God can do what Jesus is doing. He is God the Son. Think about it that way. If Son of God messes with your head, think about it as God the Son. We say God the Father. He's God the Son. That's who he is. You can read in your own time. Psalm 77 is a great one that talks about him controlling the seas and the waters and yet his footprints being unseen, how he split the oceans. Job 9 verse 7 says, God who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the the heavens, I like this, and trampled the waters of the sea. Walked on the water. It's an idea. And that's in Job, oldest book in the Bible. It's not about Peter predominantly in this, whether his eyes are necessarily on Jesus or not, although that I think is definitely true here. It's about who Jesus is. It's about the fact that Jesus goes up and he prays and he sends his disciples out and his disciples are going to get a personal experience with him that is unique. And when he comes out, he comes out to them in a miraculous way, in a miraculous way, and in a time when they are desperately seeking help. And he comes in a miraculous way and what's crazy is he stands just far enough that they call out to him. Peter does anyway. And then he says, okay, come to me. And then Peter gets out by faith and comes to him. And then he even saves him from what appears to be certain death. The obvious picture here about salvation and Jesus coming to us even in a time when we are facing struggle or hurt or pain or frustration or the impossible or death. And though we may be unsure of some things at first, whatever way he comes to us is so revealing that at some point we say, Lord, if it's you, I'll put my faith in you. And he says, it's me. Come on. And then you take a step. And when you take a step, your life's in his hands, not yours. And then he holds you and he carries you and he lifts you up and he walks with you wherever you go, not to be cliche, but it's just the truth. And the beautiful thing is not being surprised by the fact that you are able to accomplish the impossible, not because of your faith, but because you're with him, who is God of the impossible, who can do anything. He's there. He's the one that called you to step. He's the one that you hope in. It's based on knowing him and what he's able to do. And therefore, he called you to it. Guess what? You're able to do it, too. If you know he's doing it and you can see him doing it and you put faith that he's calling you to go do it, then when you step out and go do it, you'll be able to do it because he's doing it. But only because he's doing it. You know what I'm saying? You start thinking you're doing it and it might start coming apart might start coming apart on you. So what's the evidence? I asked that beginning for faith, the reason for your faith. And and Debbie answered, and I think she's right. It's the word. Let it, last verse and we're done. Go to John chapter 20. You can let go. We're finished there. Uh, but I want you to see this. The end of John, John chapter 20. One of my favorite little sections in the Bible, verse 30, says, Now Jesus did many other miracles. Besides all of these walking on water and feeding the fish and all the feeding the fish. Why keep on say that? Feeding the 5,000 fish. Jesus did many other signs, miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that are written, are why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the fact that that's written there is so that you may believe in who he is. So the word, listen to me, the word should be enough. The word should be enough. If it is, that's because his Holy Spirit has acted in your life and saved you. Is calling you to him. He came to the disciples. If he comes to you. You'll realize that the word is enough. Sometimes you'll want miracles. Sometimes you'll want those things. But you'll realize that the word is. Why do I believe him? Because the word says so. Well, it's just a book. No, 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 it's not. What makes you think it's not? I know it's not. You know what I mean? That's the that's the thing. His word, the things that are recorded here, all these signs are so that you may believe. Do you believe that the Red Sea parted? I know we say yes, I do, I believe that. But to say you believe it means you walked through it yourself. You believe it just like the ones who walked through it. But we forget it, or we stop believing it, or we choose not when things get tough, don't we? You know what I mean? Lord, again, I thank you for your word. It's just so awesome. I love being in your word. I just love reading it and studying it and thinking about you and what you revealed to us through it. Lord, I pray for each person here. Um, I don't have time to go around the room. We don't have time for that, Lord. But but I know everybody here has needs. We have things we struggle with. Maybe it's doubts. Maybe it's, you know, finances or relationships or who knows, Lord. There's things that everybody in here struggles with or needs. And you have the answers to all of those things. Lord, I pray you help us step out by faith, follow you, trust you. Not Not just look at you, but stand with you. I don't want to see you afar and trust you as I take little baby steps, God. I want to be standing beside you. And if I find myself standing beside you, Lord, and you're answering prayer, but at the same time it's impossible what you're doing, please prevent us from doubting. Let us have faith that you have control of all things, even the things that are impossible, because you created the very laws that govern this world. And, Lord, I pray for your um, answer to our prayers. Let us be grateful and thankful and bless you in any answer you provide, whether it's the one we want or not. Um, I love you. I ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.